Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, doesn't know how to back a trailer all that well. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is the straw man himself, Andrew Page. G'day, mate. How are you? Very good, very good. You better explain that reference. A little bit of inside baseball, wasn't it? I just finished regaling Andrew with uh, stories of my questionable yet eventually successful episode of backing a camper trailer in a 100-metre driveway with a couple of kinks and downhill. It's, uh, and, then, and then at the very end, it's got a hook turn to try and get it back next to the next to the house. It's a, um, it's a feat, I'm sure, a feat that actual proper people who can do these things actually would do really, really reasonably easily anyway. Uh, it took me a little bit of time. So we're actually recording this late. Andrew's been very patient waiting for me while I, uh, while I performed what was something akin to a miracle. And uh, as I said to him earlier, <laughs> luckily I have a, uh, a four-wheel drive because I'm not sure if I would have made it otherwise. But that's a whole different story. Um, if I'm not here next week, it's because my wife has realised I've possibly nailed one of her trees. But yeah, it's, 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 all, it's all a process, which has actually got nothing to do with anything other than just... Uh, Frankly, it's on my mind and I hadn't got an opening prepared for the podcast. So there you go. Tangent maybe, on a tangent on a tangent. Yeah, well, maybe you could draw some kind of parallels with investing. You know, it, it's not easy either. So you know, maybe <laughs> Investing is like backing your trailer downhill badly. There you that's go. Like a, there's a bumper sticker for you. Right there. Well, it's, actually, it's the reverse, mate. It's like, if you, you know, compared to that, investing is really easy. Really easy. <laughs> it's really not that hard. <laughs> investing is simple but not easy. Would you agree? Mm, I love that. I love that quote. Tell me why. Because it, it's just so fundamentally true that the, the big ideas with investing are really simple. You could, you could li- yeah. as, as we, on a weekly basis, sort of <laughs> list the, the big ideas. Yeah. Um, the actual application of it, though, can be very, very difficult. So, for, mm-hmm. for example, you know, investing being simple in concept, buy a quality mm-hmm. company mm-hmm. at a sensible price and hold it for a long time. What could be more simple than that? Yeah. Uh, of course, that's not necessarily easy, though. What do you mean by quality? What do you mean by good price? Big questions. Right. Right. So, right. It's, right. Kind of, it's kind of sort of playing around with those two ideas, but... Um, yeah, the good news is is that the big ideas are easy, <laughs> um, and and the other ones are, are something that I think anyone can really get their head around with a bit of bit of mm, discipline, mm. a bit of practice, and uh, so it's certainly certainly accessible to anyone who's prepared to give it a go. And that's something, mate. It's, I ask that question. It's very rare that a tangent leads us to the main thrust of the podcast, but in this case, mm-hmm. on this very special Sunday mailbag edition of Motley for Money. Uh, it actually goes exactly to the heart. You see the way I did that? People won't even notice how well I just did that. So I won't even, I'll cut this bit out later. Um, taking us to the question that we got from Igor. He says, hi, hi, Scram. He's calling us. He's joining. <laughs> but like Benifer and all those, you know, we're, Tomcat, we're Scram apparently. He says in brackets, yes, it will catch on. Um, Igor, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it will. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> we'll not. First of all, he says, uh, well, second of all, thank you so much for imparting your knowledge to us every week. You don't realise how much you are helping people like me. I started my investment journey in 2020 just after the COVID market drop. Nice timing. And did well so far, but not as well as I could have because I made every mistake your podcast later taught me to avoid. Understanding that my initial investment success was just luck in timing, I'm trying to do what I have done in my professional life, finding successful people in the field who I trust and respect, learn from them, and try to practice what I learn. I think it's a very, very smart approach in life in mm. general, Igor, you're mm. right. I came across your podcast towards the end of 2020 on a recommendation from a friend. We should, we should name them, Igor. So if you're the Igor's friend out there, thank you for putting Igor onto the podcast. By the way, quick parenthesis, 
If you have friends who would like the podcast, let them know. Motley Fool Money. It's on all the podcast machines. Uh, also, if you wouldn't mind, if you're using Apple in particular, uh, give us a rating if that's okay. Five stars would be lovely just because in this world, it's a bit like Uber, right? Anything less than 4.8 is a, is a terrible experience. So give us five stars. If you would. Even if we're worth four, bump it up for me. Just a bit, a bit, of, a bit of star inflation. A bit of inflation everywhere else, a bit of star inflation for me. Um, it, I said, look, it makes us feel good. But more importantly, uh, for them and for us, it helps more people find the podcast. So if you could, that'd be great. All right, uh, Igor says, I've been listening religiously every week ever since. I also listen to a few other podcasts that you both appear on periodically, and I've read some of the books you have recommended and will continue to read more. Reading One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch really helped me understand what to look for in a company and how to come up with an intrinsic value for the company's shares. And herein lies my problem and my question to you. Most of the time, says Igor, when the experts on a reputable podcast put a buy recommendation on a stock, my calculations show my buy price to be much lower than the current share price, even at the most optimistic set of parameters. That's okay, he says. Obviously, I'm either too pessimistic in my assumptions or doing something wrong. But what is really puzzling and frustrating to a beginner like me is when two experts disagree completely. I can understand if they have different styles of investing, but if both investors are long-term Buffett-style investors fishing in the same pond, how is it possible that one would call a stock a screaming buy and the other would put a, air quotes, lighten recommendation on it? And this is for some established and well-understood companies like CSL. I would appreciate your thoughts on the subject as it really confuses me and makes me think that if the experts can't agree on a stock, what chance do I have? And maybe I should just stick to ETFs instead. Thank you again for your ongoing advice and keep up the great work. Regards, Evo, I, Igor, sorry. P.S. Oh dear, more rants from Andrew, please. What is wrong with you people? I mean, I love you all dearly, but for the love of God, we don't need more rants from Andrew. Do we? Do I we really? Deliver. Is that what I the world's deliver. missing? What's that old song where the world's in now is love, sweet love? It doesn't need rants, sweet rants, people. <laughs> anyway, mate, um... Really, really, really great question from Igor. You and I have disagreed outright on some stocks. We have slightly different views on others uh, often when it comes to valuation. So let me just directly put Igor's question straight to you, mate. Mm -hmm. How is it possible that two experts with the same or similar styles of investing can have not only slightly different valuations, but very different ideas? Now, I don't know which one you're talking about, screaming buy and light, or who the people are. It doesn't really matter. But how is it possible? Look at CSL. How is it possible one person say, it's a screaming buy, it's so cheap that I'm literally screaming out the window. The other's mm. like, <laughs> I'd be selling if I were you. That's a, that's a big, big, big range of outcomes from two experts, same company, well-known company, hardly likely to be one of those information disparity problems. What's going on there? Eagle's already answered it. It's uh, different assumptions are being plugged in um, and, and two seemingly rational expert people with a good understanding of the business can just, you know, can, can differ quite a bit. Uh, uh. But here's the thing. With, with these models, they're very sensitive mm. and, and you can test this yourself. So choose mm. whatever model you want to choose. Yeah. Um, you know, go, go with the DCF. Yeah. Plug everything in the same, copy it across to a different sheet yep. and then change the discount rate by half a percent. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, you know, drop yeah. it from 10 to nine and a half. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you, the, yeah. the outcomes are, I mean, this is, they're very sensitive, these, yep. these things, yep. 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 Um, which on one hand sort of gives you a bit of a clue as to not to take them too seriously. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, we're sort of talking out of both sides of our mouth here because on yeah. one hand we seem to say that it's, it's important to have some kind of, 
notion of what value is. And on the other yeah. hand, we're saying, oh, yeah, but whatever you come up with is going to be wrong and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, some very reasonable people can can, <laughs> can wildly differ. That's right. Um, so what do you do in that situation? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think it's, as I've often said, it, it's the process you go through itself yeah. that is valuable because yeah. it forces you to think about things, um, you know, and, and it also it, it, it teaches you to take your outputs with a grain of salt. And I tend, I don't tend to sort of come up with a valuation. I guess at the end of the day, you've got to draw your line in the sand somewhere. But it's all, it's just useful to test a variety of assumptions, and see where that sort of scatters out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, none, none of them are going to be perfectly right. It's just it's so unlikely that you're going to perfectly uh, forecast all of the variables for a, for a company going out <laughs> yeah. forever. And even if you yeah. do, there's no guarantee the market's ever going to agree with it. But yeah. but it, it is, it is still a valuable process, um, and it, it is. It is frustrating in a way that you can see a lot of different variations, but at the same time, that's what mm-hmm. makes a market. And it's actually really great. You, you want you want the market to disagree with you, generally speaking, because if the market always perfectly did agree with you, you'd never get a chance to buy it at a discount to that at a, at a, at a cheaper price. <laughs> Ultimately, you'd love you'd love for the market to come around to your way of thinking and and have that and have that investment case realised. But uh, yeah, it's 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 all it's all going to be it's all going to be very different. I, I often I think we said it in a recent podcast. You know, when you see a lot of these reports and someone puts a valuation out, um, that's useful. But but just dig into it a little bit more. What what growth are they assuming? What multiple multiples and discount rates and all of these kinds of things. And you'll you, you'll 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 get some much more. You'll get much more clarity into their thinking and why they've come up with it the way they have. But. Yeah, it's unfortunately always it's it's something that will always be thus, um, just by the nature of, of people having different views and 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 these models being very sensitive. I think that's right, mate. I think I, the the biggest point I wanted to make was one you made, which is um, firstly just be really wary of experts, including us. Um, sanity check the assumptions. Um, so that's the first thing, right? Because two experts say X. Uh, by the way, experts in air quotes, right? So just because they've got a talking head appearing somewhere doesn't mean they're necessarily good at their job. Doesn't even necessarily they've got a great track record, right? Like, you know, you can you can put out a shingle and say, oh, I'm so-and-so fund manager or so-and-so financial advisor and then call up a TV station and say, hey, can I come on? If they take you on, then you get on TV, right? Now, mm. maybe they're great, maybe they're terrible. I'm not, not suggesting either necessarily. I'm not casting aspersions on anyone. I'm just saying be careful who you listen to. Make sure they do have that track record. And to be fair, um, you just say that, Igor. You say, look, you've got some people who, you know, you like and trust and respect and you follow them. I think that's perfect. The other thing to Ram's point is here's the, here's the long if the experts were truly experts and really had that special exclusive knowledge, then either they would be squillionaires or if it was that easy to know all the good stuff, the market would already price it in. No one would beat the market. Because if the experts actually know the answer and people follow those experts and there's enough of them, then the shares would bid up to a fair value and no one would ever get a, dis- a deal because shares would always be perfectly priced because the experts would always be right and they'd always take advantage of that and always trade on their information and their clients would. And eventually you'd end up at that point of perfect information and therefore efficient share prices. And I think the, the so the reality is the experts are, and even if even assume they're experts, even assuming they're worth listening to, let's let's pretend that, let's assume they are market beating investors, have a long track record and you're like, you know what, these guys know what they're talking about objectively, not just subjectively, objectively. The future is still completely unknowable. I've said a million times at Share Advisor, I've been running Share Advisor now for almost 10 years. The service is 10 and a half years old. This is our Motley Fool's first ever service in Australia. We have a soundly market-beating track record. So the average stock pick has beaten the market. Over time, if you'd bought all of our stock picks, not only would you have made money, you would have beaten the market. 
And still, <laughs> I'm wrong about four times out of 10. My strike rate of beating the market is six times out of 10. Now, am I an expert air quotes? You can decide. But if I've got a 10-year market beating track record, I'm probably doing something roughly right. Maybe I'm not the best investor out there. I'm certainly not the worst. Doing something roughly right and still wrong four times out of 10. And I think, Igor, that is the answer to your question, is that the experts don't know the future. They only know how to assess. And to Ram's point, simple but not easy, they know how to put the numbers in a spreadsheet. But we've talked about, I'll mention it for fun. You and I have talked about Kogan. We have mentioned it for a few weeks, Ram. Uh, you and I have really different views, right? And <clears throat> and we have the same information, the same balance sheet, the same understanding of business models, the same uh, inability to see the future. When I look at Kogan's business, I can see something that I think is going to happen. You look at Kogan, see something you think is going to happen. And our views of the future are just different. Mm. And one of us is going to be right, one of us is going to be wrong, or at least one's going to be more right than the other, or more wrong than the other if we're both wrong. Um, and that's okay. So that and that's an uncomfortable. If you're if you're starting out as an investor and you're looking for the experts and saying I can follow that person, at least I know what they're talking about. Oh, thank goodness! That takes all the risk out of it, the frustration and the difficulty. I'm just going to follow that person. I'll make a fortune. You actually might, but they won't be right every single time because they just simply can't bear it. Just it, the future is not knowable. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's just. And I know that's. So <laughs> I'm answering your question saying I'm going to ask you just to get comfortable in the discomfort. That's the best I can offer you because the experts will be different. The best thing you can do is listen to both and make your own decision. And by the way, you go to your point. If you find this frustrating, unnerving, disappointing, worrying, stressful, grab an ETF. You'll do spectacularly well. If you want to have a go and see what you, how you go and see if you can you know, invest well over time on average most of the time, which is what I've done at Share Advisor. Um, again, not to big, big myself up, by the way. I, I'm really uncomfortable doing this, Ram. I almost never do it on social media because I hate people that say, look at me, look how good I've done. Look at, <laughs> yeah, look at this great stock pick. Mm. A, it's just super classless. B, pride comes before a fall, right? It's just, mm. it's just crap. Um, but in this case, because he goes asking, you know, I, I, I do want people to actually ask about track records. And that's important. So uh, yeah, I'll be wrong sometimes. I'll be right sometimes if I'm right more than I'm wrong. And if my average winner beats my average loser in terms of gaining more than the average loser loses, then I'll make some money and I should beat the market. That's yeah. been true so far. But I could be dead wrong on Kogan. Andrew could be dead right or the opposite or somewhere in the uncomfortable in between. Um, if you, Have a go. If, you, if you're interested in investing in stocks, have a go. Or do it on paper or whatever you want to do to get yourself comfortable or it's completely fine just to stick with ETFs if that's what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. I think you've also got to... You've also got to layer the level of conviction into a lot of these things. So if you held a gun to my head and said, Andrew, come up with a valuation for company X, Y, and Z, I'll give it a crack, you know, I'll come up with a number. You'll come up with the best guess. Yeah, but yep. it's but but that that's a world away, and, and it might yep. be a company I just it, it belonging to an industry I don't understand well. Mm-hmm. I've got a very poor read on how the business sort of operates and its opportunities and its competitive dynamics and all of these mm-hmm. kinds of things. That's vastly different from a company that I've been following for the last five years and know intimately well. I've read every single annual report, yeah. and spent hours and hours. You know, I'll come up with yeah. a valuation for that one too. Yeah. Um, so so <laughs> you know, I think you've got to you've got to couch it in that. And the thing I'm always saying as well is that people, people, I, I, in our game more than any other, it's mm. sort of like we, we love to sort of present things as mm. certainty. 
And I think a real, really good um, quality of an investor is just the ability to say, "I don't know." Yeah, and that's a good point and, too. and I think for a lot of for a lot of the stocks that you will look at, that that will be the end point, and that's cool. You know, yeah. that, fortunately, yeah. there's so many to choose from. You'll find something where you you can have a much a much higher conviction on, on sort of how it works. So, mm-hmm. Kogan's a good example. I'd say I don't really have, as you say, I, I don't own it. I'm not as fond of it as you, but it's yeah. not because I'm sitting here going, "Oh, it's a dud. I would never touch it." I can totally see how that thing would work out. Yeah. Yeah. But I kind of, I kind of, a, it's it's of all of the options that are available to me, I feel I know other companies a bit better, and I feel those companies have a bit of a better upside. So it's it's also it's also worth pointing out that just because you don't own or, or like mm. something, it's not because you definitely think it's going bad. It's just like, mm-hmm. geez, I just, I'm really not sure on this one. <laughs> and that's cool. That's that's totally okay. Mm. Um, the, other, yeah, the other thing I was going to say too, I used this example in a recent um, chat that we had, which is it's, it's like the weatherman. When the weatherman gets it wrong, <laughs> um, a weather person, uh, you we're pretty forgiving of that. You know, no yeah. one writes angry letters into the TV station <laughs> saying, you said it was going to rain and it didn't rain. Yeah. And the reason yeah. is, is because people understand that it's, that there's, there's a, it's just very hard to sort of predict the weather. Yeah. The, the finance industry likes to prevent things <laughs> very, in very certain terms, because that's what sells. Yeah. As I said recently, if, if you, if you um, subscribe to a, a particular mm, a financial mm, service and they say, geez, I don't know. We kind of think that this might work and maybe mm. it's probably, around this but we totally could be wrong in fact we're wrong four times out of ten and this could yep. well be one yep. of those ones it's just while that'd be a very honest sort of view yeah, and right. actually and actually probably a really more, a far more valuable one yep. it, it just doesn't sell and it, it undermines confidence so everything is presented with dead yeah. certainty and yep. and and that's why I think people get really upset when when supposed experts make all these wrong calls and oh look at this idiot you know he or she <laughs> said this and it turned out to be wrong it's just like we we need to expect it. Yeah. And uh, in, in terms of sort of people sort of crowing about their returns and doing victory laps, I really pay it. This, this is rare, but it's a wonderful sort of heuristic to look for. Look out for the people who, are, who, who wear their failures on, uh, you know, in, in the open and talk yeah, exactly. about them. Exactly. They're the, they're the ones listen, worth listening to. Um, you know, even even someone who just throws darts at a, at a, at a dartboard <laughs> will, will have a few successes that they can That's troll right. about. Exactly. You know, talk, right. find the ones that have a huge degree of humility because if so you don't have great. humility in this game, you're done, you know. Yep. It's, yep. It's, yep. It's, it's, it's just such a valuable thing to have. So, yeah. Agreed, agreed. Um, yes, I think uh, it, it's hard in general to have we want certainty as you say mate and we are our own worst enemies to some degree because we're drawn to not not only is it easy to sell certainty we're also drawn to certainty which is why it makes it easier to sell so Mm. it's a bit of a Mm. you know for for, for our listeners including Eagle just just kind of try and keep that in mind Um, Mm. try and go for the flawed um I'm going to say flawed genius. That's, that's giving myself a bit too much of a rap. <laughs> but, the, uh, you know, yeah, go, go, go for the, the flawed work. And I, I've talked a lot about, I, I tweeted about actually a couple of weeks ago, the fact we, we lionise the artist. And I mean artist in a broad sense. The Steve Jobs, the Elon Musk, the, the, the brilliant visionary. We don't give any, and we probably overdo that, we don't give anyone enough credit to the craftsman. The person or craftsperson, the person who works and works and works and works at their craft to improve it slowly over time, to perfect it just as a matter of process, right? Mm. We all want to follow Steve Jobs. We all want to follow Elon Musk. We are blinded by the light. And there is absolute genius there. I don't mean to denigrate that at all. Um, Without Jobs, we don't have the iPhone. Without Musk, Tesla is probably a failed, bankrupted, you know, would-be electric car company. Um, 
But the craftsperson who's just, you know, trying to improve their craft, make mistakes, improve, learn from them, you know, get a little bit better, iterate over time, uh, two steps forward, one step back. It's not as sexy, um, but most of us should, well, frankly, be, would be a lot better if we focused on that. And I think generally speaking, following that's probably a good idea as well. I don't have a single original thought in terms of investing, if you say, you know, of, of all the things that you try to employ when, when you're, when you're buying it, you know, what, what new insight have you brought to the table here yeah, that, yeah. that others have failed to see before you? The, the sad answer is not a single one. Right, right. They are all borrowed ideas. I said, but there's, there's not been a single thing you're investing in at least 40 years. Yeah. There are different applications of those principles. There is not a single new idea. Different things get more focus. Different things get more prominence. Frankly, very little of it actually deserves more prominence. It just becomes cool or uncool, mm. as the case might be from time to time. Uh, but as you as you started by saying, you know, the the simple but not easy, mm. the rules haven't changed since 1945. Mm. <laughs> They're the same rules. Mm. You know, applying them well in a different environment is tough and difficult and whatever, but nothing's changed. Nothing's new. I'm exactly the same as you. I, I love Sir Isaac Newton's quote. And I try and use it regularly about myself if I ever have those successes, which is if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm. Uh, I learned my craft at the proverbial feet of some of our US Motley Fool staff who've been there for 20 plus years. Um, people you would know the names of and know probably personally, uh, Tom Gardner, David Gardner, Jeff Fisher, Bill Mann. I only mention those people because they deserve that, that highlighting and most of them learned their craft from somebody else. That's kind of the nature of the beast, right? So that's the important part. Yep. All right, let's move on, mate, if we can. Uh, interesting question from, uh, this one comes from Matt. He just says, love your podcast. Just wonder, what do you think of fine wine as an asset class? Mm. Ram? Uh, it, it belongs under the umbrella of collectibles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it depends how, it depends how, um, much of a Puritan you want to be. I, I, I would probably say an asset is something that has the potential to generate cash flow. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> I say that as a person who's got some investments in Bitcoin. Um, so <laughs> I don't, don't, don't ask me to rationalize that right now. Um, <laughs> But but a whole other conversation. But um, <laughs> it, it I mean, do, do do fine wines have value? Yeah, mm. they they do because other people uh, yeah. see them as, as having value <laughs> in the same way that baseball cards or footy cards or uh, dolls or you name any number kind of you know beanie kind. babies back in the day. They're, they're all collectibles, you yeah. know. Um, there's people out there that uh, that that collect Commodore 64s, you know, it's just, it's whatever <laughs> it Commodores. is. Yeah, yeah, but value is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. So where it's a little bit difficult though is be, when, when you've got something that generates a stream of cash, not mm. that it's, again, it's <laughs> simple but not easy, um, mm. it's easier to sort of logically derive a value because you can sort of, you can define value as the sum of all future cash flows. Yeah appropriately discounted back to today. Um, when something doesn't have that, you, I mean, so what you're really trying to forecast mm -hmm. and, and predict is what other people will think at some point in the future. Yes. Now, that doesn't make it total guesswork. If you really know your wine and you know that this is something that anyone who knows wine will will want to, um, will see as valuable in the future and yeah. perhaps more valuable in the future, then by all means do it. But you have to, you know, it's like it's like any investment class. You, you've, yeah. I feel as though you need to be able to sort of state what your edge is mm -hmm. in that because you are in a market and there'll be plenty of other people buying and selling fine wine. And mm -hmm. to buy this fine wine in the first place, you have to 
buy it off someone else. So that presumably the person who's selling it, you know, thinks they're <laughs> getting a good deal as well. So it's this idea that in in yeah, in, in this kind of game, you you've you've you uh, absolutely you just need to be able to define that value expect yeah. and have a reasonable basis for it to continue yeah. uh, to to appreciate. And I'd also say too, it's one of the big ideas that, that is ever changing is, is that of opportunity cost. So even if you're really good at that and you feel as though I can mm-hmm. buy this bottle of wine and, and maybe I get 5% a year for the next 20 years, mm. well, there's a cost in that because you could probably also reasonably expect closer to a double digit return in an ETF. So, you know, there's there's it's not just about being able to identify a return that is positive, but one that is better than all the other opportunities you have at at your disposal. And then there's something that's sort of really sort of fuzzy and intangible, which is just the pure joy of owning something. Mm. Right. And, and, and I, I can't criticize that. If, if, if you are really into your wines and there's just something that gives you a warm fuzzy, knowing that you've got this bottle from such and such (laughs) region from such and such year. Yeah. It, it's immensely valuable to you, just just you know, in the same way that art is valuable to someone. It just sits mm. on their wall, doesn't generate a single cent of cash flow, but they just love yep. it and appreciate it, and just get, get great satisfaction in in owning it. Mm. Mm. So yeah, I, I look, you, you, uh, yeah, I've got no complaints with anyone who wants to invest in wine. Just make sure you, you've 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 got a reason to expect that you'll be able to guess future future worth better than other people. Yep, I think that's right. I think that, and that's that fundamentally is the problem. So uh, yeah, personally. I'm not a fan of fine wine as an asset class because you don't know what that future will look like and the chance of knowing that future, A, better than anybody else, B, just in general, is really, really difficult. Um, I'm no art collector either, but there are times when some artists are more popular than others and tastes and fads and fashions change. The biggest challenge, I think, is if you've got a cash flow. Now, the cash flow can be hard to predict, but let's take a really simple example, uh, a gas pipeline or Woolworths, right? At some point, people might stop shopping at Woolies for a million different reasons, but it's relatively uh, lower degree of difficulty to forecast Woolies cash flows to your point, Ram, for an extended period of time, add those up, discount them back. That's roughly a, a value, a price. Mm. And yes, those cash flows could change. Yes, the PEs could change. So yes, people might pay less or more for those uh, th- those cash flows at some point as a multiple, but at least there are those cash flows there, which just lowers the degree of difficulty for most people in a relative sense compared to buy a bottle of wine now, put it down for 15, 20 years, hope A, it doesn't spoil, B, there's a there's a sale network, C, I bought for a decent price and D, someone's going to pay me more for that and maybe meaningfully more for that at that point. Um, French wines seem, you know, perpetually popular. Maybe they always will. Maybe old ones will always be more popular. Maybe there'll always be higher demand. Scarcity is a thing. So I get the older is probably, that's probably a safe-ish bet, but there's been bubbles in lots of asset classes before, right? Um, there are times Tulips. you pay too much for any of these. Right, exactly. Perfect mm. example, right? Exactly what it is. Think about fashion, think about bubbles, think about whatever's. Are tulips worth something? Yeah. The farmer's got to grow them and seed them and unplant them and what else you do with tulips? And, uh, uh, you know, but but you're exactly right. So yeah, I, I personally... Wouldn't buy fine wine as an investment. Um, I just think there are you're, maybe just your point opportunity cost around. It's just there are simpler, better, easier options. Also, some that pay dividends and have some nice tax benefits that are also useful as well. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Hey, let's get a one from Jimmy. Jimmy says, Hi, Scott and Ram. Firstly, thoroughly enjoy the podcast. Good banter between you two with well-considered views. Well, mine might be, and I guess that makes up for Ram, Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> sorry, man. One thing has been bugging me. Oh, here comes a Ram. When not only listening to your podcast, but the media more generally. Now, I will say this was sent by Jimmy before the federal budget. 
and before the petrol excise was cut. Not that it's directly relevant, but it's important just in terms of the context of before and after. Um, it feels as if oil slash petrol prices going up has triggered the media to froth at the mouth about interest rate rises. Why would the RBA raise rates on a supply side shock? Now, I'll just quickly define our terms. Supply side shock is simply where the cost of a commodity gets pushed up. We all have to pay more for it. It's not caused by more of us wanting a thing and the price going up because we all want it. Think Australian housing. <laughs> um, but a supply side shock, which is, hey, it's just there's less of it around. There's a shortage which is pushing the price up, not through any growth in demand, just through a shock to supply, which is mm. the point that Jimmy's making. Mm. Isn't an increase, asks Jimmy, in fuel prices actually doing what the RBA would do by raising rates? That is, higher petrol prices means reduced disposable income. I understand this sudden increase in prices may well be a short-term shock, but if petrol prices were to remain at the levels they are now and therefore spin off into both raising prices while subduing economic activity, wouldn't raising rates just guarantee stagflation? Mm. Thanks again for the podcast. You guys are great at what you do. Thanks, Jimmy. Cheers from James. Um, do you want to take that one? Do you want me to take that one, right? What a great question, James. Is it? Yes, yeah. Uh, it, it's yeah. It, uh, it's why it's so diabolically hard. Um, so uh, I, I think all of that is is true, really. Yeah, higher higher prices is going to help take the steam out of uh, things a little bit. Um, and a supply side driven inflation is is very different from demand side. It's it's all it's all true. There's, there's the, the RBA and the, and the prognosticators would probably make the point, though, that there are other factors. So even if you take that away, there is still inflationary pressures there and, and, um, and some of them very much demand side driven. So it's kind of and, and this is we, we've talked about this repeatedly. It's just this. This is why interest rates are such a blunt instrument, because there's a gazillion things that sort of feed into it. Some will be very understandable and, and likely temporary. Others will be more structural and lasting. And you've got to, you get this poor old Glenn Stevens has to balance all of this up and make a call. And you, you say know. Glenn Stevens? Did I? I mean, um, <laughs> Philip Lowe. Philip Lowe. Philip Lowe. That's, a, gonna, that's a throwback, man. Oh. The t- party like us, 2007. Love it. That's great. <laughs> and then I nearly said Rob Lowe. So it shows, shows you how <laughs> Can I tell you, just quickly, just just because uh, you mentioned it, uh, I, I, she won't mind me saying this, I don't think. She said it to more people than listening to this podcast right now. Deb Knight, who's the 2GB Afternoons uh, presenter. Uh, I, I do a regular spot with her on uh, 2.30 in the afternoon if you're in Sydney. Um, and she actually did say that at one point. She said, oh, and Rob Lowe is putting up, you know, talking about putting your interest rate. <laughs> and I, did, I thought, I'm in I good can't company. Say, I can't say anything I didn't. And then obviously one of her staff mentioned at the end said, and obviously I meant Philip Lowe, not Rob Lowe, the actor. <laughs> it's not Rob Lowe running this down below. That was great. Anyway, back to what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I think it's a really excellent point and one of the many, many things that they have to weigh up. This, I'd, I'd love to be able to give a, a really great uh, uh, answer that that was more nuanced and, and detailed than that, but it, yep. I, I can't. Maybe you can do a better job of it. No, look, so I, I have said before, I might have said in this podcast, at some point inflation is, is the solution to inflation for exactly the reasons that, that uh, his handle is Jimmy. Uh, he says, he's signed himself off James and I read his handle first. I'm not sure whether to call him Jimmy or James. I'll call him James. That's how he signed off. Um, James raises that very point. Isn't, isn't, isn't the price of going up going to subdue activity? Yeah, absolutely it will. Mm. Um, the, the challenge, I think, generally speaking, and he's also worried about supply side. Supply side. The, big, the strongest argument is what James has put forward, which is if it's not going to change behaviour, why put rates up and just make it even more painful? If you've, got a, if you've got a demand shock, which is everyone's throwing money around like helicopters and we're all spending on everything and let's just dampen people down, let's stop them going out and growing demand, that's the strongest reason to put up rates. There is absolutely, James, an argument not to put up rates because of what you said. The 
challenge, I think, is that you've just got to be a little bit careful because as we talked about on our budget episode, um, inflation and wages can be its own spiral. Inflation and inflation and other costs can be its own spiral. And the, the simple reality is that inflation alone isn't often enough to dampen this stuff down. The, 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 the kind of the chain of events that, you know, petrol prices cause fruit and veg to go up, fruit and veg costs, you know, whatever to go up. So I demand more, more money for my job so then I spend more, you know, it's all that stuff that happens. Um, my boss puts prices up so that you have to pay more than you have to pay what you want raised from your boss and so on and so forth. Um, it's something you got to kind of kill it off, choke it off. Sometimes prices going up are enough. We've seen a squillion times right around the world that hyperinflation happens. So the, the honest answer to your point is Venezuela or Zimbabwe or Russia back in the day. Um, once this gets out of control, it, yes, it's its own feedback loop, but if, more, if prices increase to cover increased prices, in other words, if I put my price up, if I'm a truck driver, to cover my fuel costs, then yes, it will dampen economic activity, but it's been the case in the past in more than half a dozen different places that that's not enough. And it's not done swiftly enough to actually literally, you know, cut off the head, the snake at the head, that kind of idea, right? So um, you're right conceptually, but if it doesn't happen quickly enough or significantly enough, it actually creates an inflationary spiral rather than actually killing off inflation itself. And it's two sides of the same coin. It's a, de- a devilishly ugly problem to have um, because you're right. The RBA makes things worse by putting rates up when price is already up. But they're, you know, they are acting to try to stop that spiral. I mentioned again in our podcast on the budget, uh, the wages and prices accord from the government in the early 80s did exactly that. Both the unions and the government agreed that, hey, if we let this thing keep going, this is going to cause problems. So we're going to have to just literally lop it off at the head. Now, as Ram said on that episode, there are other ways to deal with um, the amount of money people get to take home and the way we distribute wage income across the economy. But bottom line is if wages and prices continue to feed back into each other, that becomes a problem. So, you know, again, as I said, I'm repeating myself a little bit on that podcast episode. The unions now want a 5% pay rise to cover inflation. So that's going to put up the price of truckies and nurses and other people. So, okay, so that, that then pushes the price up in those businesses and so on and so forth. Then they want another pay rise. And again, there are better ways and easy, different ways to do it as Ram made the very good point in that episode. But that's why we have to be a little bit careful. In the long run, you're absolutely right. But- Killing inflation, uh, it may well be, you know, the, the, the kind of killing the golden goose problem. If, if you don't deal with it strongly, quickly and whatever, um, that that it can cause hyperinflation. Now, not that I'm speaking that for Australia, by the way, but it can cause hyperinflation before it kills off the inflation problem itself. So, yes, you get there, but you may kill the patient in order to save them, um, mm. which, would be a, which would be a tough old way to go. Yep. Uh, question from Dave, mate, uh, who says, uh, Hi, Scott, possible question for the mail. That's an actual question now. Thank you for your and Andrew's advice regarding considering the share price valuation and not just look at the future growth prospects of a company. In the past, I've bought good companies but not considered valuations. I currently own US tech shares and a couple of Australian shares such as Domino's and Seek. While I plan on not selling any shares for the foreseeable future, I am looking at increasing ETF positions. I realise you can't give me investment advice, but would you suggest the NASDAQ 100, the S&P 500, or the All World ETF? Growth is my main priority. Any insights would be much appreciated for me to consider. Great question, Dave. Let's let's define our terms first, Ram. I'll I'll do the preamble, and you mm-hmm. can give the first view, and I'll I'll throw in second. So let's break this down. The NASDAQ 100 is a tech ETF 
The NASDAQ 100 is the 100 top non-financial companies listed on the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. In the US, there are two. We talk about the US stock market as if it's one thing. It kind of is at a, at a, at a total level. But there's the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. Add them together, you get the US market in, in total. But the NASDAQ's super, super tech-heavy um, absolute, in absolute terms, plus relative to the New York Stock Exchange. The S&P 500 is the index of the largest-ish, not all, but mostly, 500 companies on the US exchanges, plural. So you're going to get most of the NASDAQ 100 and a very large chunk of the New York Stock Exchange. So the NASDAQ will have just the tech stocks and a couple others. Uh, I think Pepsi might be the same on the NASDAQ. It used to be. Um, the S&P 500 will pick all of those plus, or most of those, plus a whole lot of big companies, GE and General Motors and Ford and Nike and pick your, pick your kind of you know, US blue chips. And then the world ETF takes all the US market, not all of it, but the top companies there, plus Europe, UK, uh, I, think it's, I think it includes Japan, the world's developed markets. This one. So it's not exactly an all world ETF. It's basically developed world excluding Australia is the Vanguard VGS is the code for this one. They're the three separate ETFs. So there's pros and cons for each, which I might actually start by asking you to do, Andrew. What are the pros and cons of those three ETFs in your mind? Well, there's a bit of a spectrum there, isn't it? The further <laughs> further you kind of go down it, the, the more yeah. broadly diversified you are. And, you know, theory would dictate the more diversified you are, the lower the risk that you have, you know, um, there's more things that have to blow up <laughs> for you to get in, into trouble. There, there's a compromise on that, though, as there often is in economics and investing. Um, so if, if technology shares go incredibly well over the next 10 years, you're not going to capture the full value of that because you will be diluted by all the things that, that aren't technology stocks, they, who aren't performing as well. So it's really, it's hard to, it's hard to criticise anyone's choice in any of those if you're after a broad-based e e ETF. But I would say you would lean towards the NASDAQ 100 if you specifically wanted technology focus and you mm -hmm. thought that on average the companies that, con that, that constitute that ETF were at reasonably decent value. Um, mm -hmm. That's a hard question to answer, but that's, that's, that's what you need to try and answer. Um, yeah, I don't have much to say other than that. What do you think? Do you have a particular preference among those three? I would you rank all three. Well, this is this is. I've got to be careful because you know what's right for me could be wrong for someone else. Well, yep. will be wrong for someone else. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I do have I do have uh, uh, the Nasdaq ETF um, in my mm -hmm. super account. I'm really happy to do that. Yep. Why? I just think I love technology companies. <laughs> it gives me exposure to some of the biggest, best companies in the world. I think Google yeah. will be around for a long time. I think Amazon yeah. and Netflix, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. again, I've, I've, I have, I, and, and actually, you know, I, I, we could have a discussion on the valuations on each of those. But because <laughs> this is sort of by definition a very, very long-term investment, I, I feel as though the overall growth will probably do me reasonably well in the fullness of time. Mm. So I, I like so that one. What would you put second? Uh, probably the S&P 500. Was that? Uh, the US is something magic about the US. There's a lot of problems in the US, but there's something magic <laughs> about, uh, you know, what, what they do there. I, 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 a lot of people will tend to sort of say, oh, you need to have exposure to Europe. You need to have exposure to copy. You need to, or whatever it is, they'll say some sort of area you have to. And I just sort of think, <laughs> why? I don't, yeah. I mean, I'm saying there isn't a reason, but you, yeah. uh, you've got to, you've got to give me that reason other than just to sort of state it as, as fact. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's really, it's really hard to argue strongly on, on why that is, is the, 
the, the case for me. I too, as an investor, tend towards more concentration as to less. Now we're we're talking shades of grey here. I mean, you know, it, yeah. but you could hardly say an S and P five hundred is, is ETF is a is a concentrated <laughs> holding in any way, shape, or form. But yeah. Yeah. I just feel as though once you start, for me anyway, once I start getting to these world ETFs, <laughs> put it put it this way, put it this way. So ultimately, we we know that markets will reflect what's happening at a fundamental level with all of those businesses. Yeah. If you were to basket up every single company in the world, mm-hmm. well, almost by definition, you're never going to get more than two, three, four percent average return because yeah. that's that's what the that's on all on average, that's what the economy is kind of likely to grow at over a long period of time. At yeah. best, at best, we just don't we don't live in a, in a world where you know double digit returns for the entire global economy are ever going to mm. be sustained over any reasonable period, for a whole bunch of very very important reasons. So I feel as though people people approach these things thinking, oh well, it's sort of you know I've got a little bit of everything. It's super safe. It is. It is. But. But you're just going to get. I would imagine you're going to get very ordinary returns over a long period of time. So I'm going to tend towards the things that give me. Whereas I would say, if you look at the entire planet Earth, and I have to choose pockets of that that can have the ability to grow at, at sort of higher than average rates. Yeah. Well, you know, US-based uh, Silicon Valley technology companies are probably you know you could probably make a far worse bet than that. So I I tend to agree, mate. It turns out I actually own units near all three of these ETFs. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I've I've absolutely um, I own one of them. I think on my in my son's account. I've mentioned it before. Um, the other two I own, I own personally, or yeah, through Super some of it. But you know, for, for ourselves. Um, so I'm I'm absolutely agnostic on all three. But I will say to your point, I'm pretty sure my apportionment is roughly in the same order you've listed it. Um, mm. I have said before, and I, I've, I say almost every time I do say this, it sounds like a marketing bit of marketing spin. I don't mean it to. But to your point about those tech companies, these are the companies that are inventing the future. It sounds, it sounds like, you know, mm. for some tagline, some, you know, uh, scott.com, we're inventing the future, you know. But, <laughs> but it's true, right? The growth, mm. the growth is going to come from the continued use of technology, the companies, the products, the services that are made available through technology are likely to come from these tech behemoths and they're likely to be listed on the on the NASDAQ. Mm. As I said, probably from the big guys. If it's not, probably from the little guys that become big guys and guess what? Get listed on the NASDAQ 100. Mm. So you kind of like heads I win, tails I don't lose a little bit. Now, if the big guys all falter, then there's a, we'll probably go down even if the little guys start to grow or keep growing. That was the case in 1999-2000, right, when the mm. market fell massively even though Amazon and eBay and others uh, were on that at that point, um, still didn't stop getting smashed. So there are t- yeah, I'm not saying it's going to go up and in a straight line, uh, but I agree with you. I think it's most likely. They are, the, by definition, also the higher valuation of the three groups, and so you are hoping that's true just to justify the valuation and then some. Uh, and as the previous questioner asked, you know, if I looked at valuations, uh, oh, sorry, I looked at companies, now I'm looking at valuations, uh, that's that's kind of the point. So you are paying more for that potential already. So don't double count it too much. Uh, but I would expect the, the NASDAQ does better. Um, I own the S&P 500 just for some straight broad US exposure. Um, I, I own Berkshire, as people know, in the last 12 months, Berkshire outperformed both Lester and Apple. So you go, okay, well, you know, do you want to miss that? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I do think NASDAQ will beat the S&P 500, by the way, but I might be wrong. So part of that for me is just straight out diversification. And Andrew, I've said before, as I agree with you, half-ish of the S&P 500's revenue comes from global. So you don't really need global plus S&P 500 really, uh, with the exception of some companies simply aren't listed there. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the Vanguard Global v- ETF, it's a VGS is the code, as I said, 
that's literally for me just like a, that is the ultimate diversification tool. It's just like I've got some Australian investments. I've got some VGS. That gives me the rest of the world effectively. Um, I've also got the Asian Tigers ETF to complete the box set uh, to give me literally every, you know, almost every market around the world with the exception of like South American and developing countries, for example. Um, but yeah, I, I, if I was going to order them in my terms of expectation, I would go NASDAQ, then S&P, then Vanguard. The fact that I have all three suggests to you that I don't feel that in super strong conviction uh, and I'm happy that you know one of them will be the best in 10 years' time. If I'm right, I, I, I you know like everything, if I'm right about my number one conviction stock, I should put everything in that one stock and let it run because I'm going to make a squillion. Uh, it's like everyone says, you know, if you bought Afterpay, nothing else should have made a fortune. Yeah, but in a different universe, Afterpay crashes and burns, you lose everything. So you want to be diversified. That's the point. And for me, that's why I own all three. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Hey, um, let's go to a question from. Let's go from Mike. Uh, this is a this is a bit of a one for me, mate. But I'd love your thoughts as well. He says, "Hey, Scott, loved your recent article and podcast on Berkshire. I'm probably overanalyzing this a lot." <laughs> he says, "Obviously, Berkshire is a great company for obvious reasons and ticks all the boxes with performance, people, and having the great Warren Buffett himself outperforming the index." Now, I suppose he says this is the great thing about investing. There is always risk. What are you feeling after Charlie and Warren pass? I'm probably looking too much into it. And an S&P 500 or Vanguard Global, we just talked about those, is probably just as good instead of getting analysis paralysis. Do you think, asks Mike, the company can still outperform? I'd love to know what you are thinking with Berkshire in the future and if you'd continue to invest in it. Not financial advice, I know. I love the company and its diversity, but I'm umming and ahhing with what happens after Buffett passes and if the company is still in good hands. The legacy and the people running the company in future is what's make me think a bit. Bit all over the place question, but hopefully you get my idea. Would love to hear or get your thoughts. Thanks and love your work. That's from Mike. Uh, I own Berkshire shares. It's my single largest holding as we speak. Thanks to a, a nice run up last year, which was unexpected. Um, so I, if I didn't think the company would be okay post Buffett, I would sell it now. The guy is 92. <laughs> you know, so I was like, eh, 91, I think he might be. Um, you know, if I, if, I, if I had a 20-year thesis on Buffett and I was buying Berkshire, I'd probably need my head read. So, Mike, you can assume by virtue of the fact I own the shares, I'm not too worried about it. I wouldn't be surprised if the company's shares fall, maybe even meaningfully when he dies, just because he's Buffett, right? And the Buffett acolytes who just think, Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, that'll do, then go, oh, no Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, I'm not sure anymore. And they may well sell. If I know Berkshire, I would suspect, this is rampant speculation, that the board has approval to buy back shares at some predetermined price or multiple in the event the share price crashes after Buffett dies. They may not, and I might be completely wrong. No, they're but pretty I would, sure they do. I would imagine they've thought this one through. Mm. And they also know, by the way, who the next CEO is. So, but, but the share price could still fall. It could still fall meaningfully, and that's okay with me um, because I'm a long-term investor. I love Buffett. I'm glad he's there. He absolutely adds value. The, the business is worth less without Buffett than with him at, by definition, absolutely by definition. Pick, a, pick your favourite sports team. Is it worth more without? Is it worth the same without the star? No, absolutely not. Could it still win? Maybe, different question. Uh, culture matters, people matter, as you've talked about. And again, pick your favourite sports team. Some crash and burn after their star leaves. Some crash and burn while the star's still there. Others build a culture and a system and manage to find a way to keep winning. Uh, Melbourne Storm, great example of that. Um, did they win the premiership? No, but they're doing remarkably well without three or four of their very best players if you're an NRL fan. I'm sure they're AFL soccer uh, hockey, cricket examples. Um, I the company is. I don't think. I don't think. So here's the thing. I don't think the company's worth too much money, even without Buffett there right now. Doesn't mean it won't fall, 
there's not a lot of Buffett premium in the share price. And if you think about the operating businesses, a fantastic insurance operation, uh, wonderful subsidiary businesses, great cash flow generation, spitting out, I mean, honestly, Buffett's done bugger all the last two years because he hasn't found anything to buy. He's, he's, take, he's, bought, he's buying a reinsurance business, uh, Allegheny, I think it's pronounced. Um, but he's done almost nothing. The, the cash, the cash uh, pile keeps growing because he hasn't got anything to do. He hasn't found anything to do. So realistically, and uh, excuse my uh, irreverence, if he died two years ago, the business would be in a, not a different position right now, fundamentally, share price maybe, fundamentally the business would be exactly the same today as it was then. Why? Because Buffett's not actually done anything particularly interesting. Um, so that that's almost it's almost you almost get a trial run, right? You almost get you almost get to look at what's going on uh, without actually looking at what, without him actually dying. Uh, so look, I, yeah, I, it's not as worth as much without him. I will be horribly sorry when he's gone. Ditto with Charlie, who's older than Warren, uh, so he may well go first. Although at this point, it's probably a toss of a coin. Uh, I feel, feel so very reverent, very un, unkind, speaking like this, but that's the reality. I don't think they'd mind. In fact, Charlie would be happy to talk exactly these terms. I'm pretty sure he's pretty irascible like that. Uh, so yeah, no, no, no interest, no, no worries. By the way, you say, and again, we can't give you personal advice, Mike, as you know, but if you're arming and arming, you're not sure, there's nothing wrong with the ETF, as I'll say about every answer so far. Yeah, talk about ETF, sure, buy an ETF. If that makes you feel better, I think you should absolutely do it. I'd be very happy. If I had, if there was a rule tomorrow, if my wife walked out, out of, the, out of the, the bedroom and said, mate, we need to, I'm getting too stretched about all these shares things. Um, I can't sleep unless you're just selling and buying an ETF. Like, okay, fine, that's all right. Will we do as well? No, but I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be more than happy. If that was where we end up, I'd be more than happy with that because um, we'll do very, very well. Uh, I think we'll do better picking stocks, but if that's, you know, or if, or if, you know, some companies like ours actually forbid their staff owning stocks because of conflicts of interest. If, if the boss told me tomorrow, hey, new company policy, I, I'd, I'd argue about it, by the way, um, but if it was a case of, well, you either do it or you leave, that's fine. I'd sell everything and buy an ETF and be very, very happy with that. So uh, no issue with that, but I expect Berkshire to continue to at least perform as well, probably outperform. But it's not going to be a massive outperformer, let's be honest. Uh, so the, the bigger it is, the longer it goes, frankly, the less outperformance I expect. And so the smaller the gap anyway between Berkshire and uh, even if it does outperform and an ETF of a, a similar nature, an S&P 500 or something else. Mm. Your thoughts, Ram? I got massive deja vu. I feel as though we answered the same question a couple of weeks ago. Um, <laughs> it's did. come up before, yeah. Uh, it has come up before. No, I won't, I won't expand on that. I, other than just to say that culture is really important and, yep. you know, for at least, well, in fact, for the entire time, uh, yep. Warren and Charlie have spent a huge, I mean, that. <laughs> in, in fact, the amount of time they focus on culture is, is, is uh, right. really, is, right. is significantly more than most others, you know, yep. because everything sort of stems from that, you know, capable competent, trustworthy yeah. people uh, are everything in, a, in most businesses and especially in a, in a business like this. And, yep. and um, they will forego otherwise attractive opportunities if they don't mm. really, if, if, if a lot of those characteristics aren't met um, in, in, in the, the target acquisition. So, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have any hesitation um, in, in owning that at all. You're going to do very well. Mate, um, a quick couple from us. Uh, we covered similar issues before, but worthy of just touching on them because they're questions from our listeners. Jason says, Amazon stock split. Seems interesting. I've heard it's 20 to 1, meaning there'll be an opportunity to buy at 150 bucks? Question mark. To which you say? Deja vu. A um, hundred times we've answered this one. And I get it because it, it, does, it doesn't... It Versions does, of, yeah. It's not, it's not obvious, but, you know, pizza, something, 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 slices, you know. <laughs> But, <laughs> but look, it, the, the company is the company is the company. If you want to represent it by more shares or less shares or whatever, it's going to change their notional value. It doesn't change the value of the company at all. You know, should they be doing it? Probably not. 
Um, yep. Will they do it? Do other companies do it? Yeah. The, what's the rationale? Bit, bit better liquidity, apparently. Um, some of that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's it's an absolute of all the things that you should be looking at if you're deciding on whether to buy Amazon shares, whether they've got you know, ten million shares on issue or twenty million shares or whatever the number is. It's 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 irrelevant. Price, yeah. It's it's a mathematical abstraction. It is. And Jason, if you're if you're thinking, hey, I didn't have three grand to put into this, but I've got two grand, I can buy some shares now because they're cheaper, then that's absolutely true. So if, it, if it's literally a total quantum of cash question, then yeah, absolutely, you get a chance to buy some shares at a cheaper price. And so if you've got $1,000, you can buy, was it six shares, six and a half shares, uh, rather, than, rather than having to wait to get $3,000 to buy one. So yeah, it, it's more accessible, uh, but doesn't change valuation, doesn't change the investment opportunity or the potential investment returns, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Question from Mitchell who just says, hi, Scott, thanks for the podcast. Love them. I've got a question. What is your view on members' participation in class actions against companies? I.e., he says, Morris Blackburn versus Woolies. To me, it seems like for your average investor, participation is a no-brainer. Being unlikely to pursue anything personally, usually not being liable for any costs and receiving at least some sort of financial return. Uh, yeah, I just really hope you don't ever get to that stage. Um, <laughs> cause even when you win, you don't really win. <laughs> That's true. You know, sure is paying. Call back a, a few extra cents that you might not have otherwise got. Yeah. Uh, but I have to say, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of, of shareholder mm. activism in mm-hmm. that sense that, that, uh, uh, you yep. using, you know, it's collective, collective action, I, I, to, mm. to, to advocate for, for improvement and change. Um, as I say, you find what usually when this opportunity comes up, the situation is bad already. <laughs> I was going to say, you don't normally get improvement and change. You might just make back a little bit of the money you've lost. It's, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a um, rubbish collection business, right? It's kind of like, well, we'll see what's fine, we'll see what scraps we can find and whack together something and put it in a bag for you. Yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, and it is, it is a, you're right. I mean, there's nothing that you sort of have to front up and maybe you get something. So I think if it's just a matter of like putting your name on a list and, <laughs> you know, and, and helping yeah. in that way, I absolutely do it. But in terms of, in terms mm-hmm. of what, what it can do, where it's bad is it can really distract you in terms of your time and your energy. Um, yeah. The loss has been yeah. made. It's unfortunate. As you said before, Kind of get used to it because you're going to be you're going to be wrong a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, 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 I'm, I'm sure my my odds strike rates are even worse than yours in terms of sixty forty. I, you mm-hmm. know, so you've made the loss. Whatever you yep. can get back now, get it and put it into something else and and, and spend your efforts on yeah. that on, yeah, exactly. on what you should do. And look, but but by all, I don't want to be I don't want to be too bar humbuggy. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely. If you if you can sort of lend weight to the cause yep. by adding your name to a list, yeah, do it. A lot of the time. These guys and, and girls deserve to be uh, chased and prosecuted for, for egregious actions and, uh, and, and, you know, hopefully there's a bit of comeuppance in, in some of those cases. Vengeance is mine, saith the ram. <laughs> um, exactly. It's, uh, yeah, there's no harm in putting your name down for it. it, it, it the, the result's probably not much, and but whatever. As long as you're not liable for any costs. If you are liable for any costs, run a mile because the chance of these things being delivering are, are slight and the returns are almost always also slight. Um, so I wouldn't put a cent towards any of these class actions personally, but there's no harm in adding your name to a list. Do you know what the hey, odds are no. on, on that? Um, no, I don't. Just you? anecdotal. Like, do you, I, I don't know um, what what the success rate is with class actions. I think, what, well, so 
<laughs> let, let me let me. I don't know the stats. Mm. Um, anecdotally slash um, skeptically, uh, these big law firms don't take this stuff on if they don't think there's a chance of winning because they mm. only get paid if they win. In most cases, they get mm. a cut of the proceeds, which is what I don't love about these things. I won't speak to Morris Blackburn specifically or the Woolworths case in particular. I don't know what. I actually don't know the details of that one at all. Um, but. Uh, if you're a no win no fee law firm, a you're going to get a very large chunk of the, the winnings because that's the risk you're taking. That's the that's the ROI for them. They're also not going to invest a whole lot of time, effort, money into something unless either a it's good for the brand, which be mindful that might be what it is, or b they think there's a very good chance of winning. So I would I would speculate the chance are reasonably good of a very small return, mm-hmm. um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be a litigation funder in this space just because. You don't know what the chances are going to be. So I wouldn't put any money towards it. But there's no harm in adding your name to a list of people who get some money if there is a victory in the case. Oh, yeah, for sure. Or yeah. a settlement. Hey, last question. I like this one. Um, it's a fun one. So Ryan says, question for the mailbag. Hi, Scott and Andrew. My friend put me onto this podcast around six months ago. Another one, six months ago. And I haven't missed an episode since. Love your work. Well, Ryan, if you've got nothing else to do, that's fa- I mean, I mean, that's great. I mean, of course you love it. <laughs> um, I'm unfortunately not in the wonderful position I'm about to highlight, but I always wondered what I should do if I was. I like this. This is kind of almost, you know, what would I do if we win the lotto, but it's a different one. If, says Ryan, I was 30 years old and therefore had around 35 years left in the market. I, I'm going to say I don't agree with the premise of your question, Ryan. I reckon if you're 30, you've got 70 years left in the market, but we'll keep that for later. But also had a half a million dollar home loan and then was gifted half a million dollars. Do you think it would be better for me to put all the money in an ETF, like the S&P 500, and compound it for 35 years and keep paying off the mortgage? Or should I use the money to be completely debt-free and then dollar cost average? Mm. What I would have been paying on the mortgage into my an ETF for the next 35 years. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Ryan. Great Housing question. or shares, what do you do, mate? <laughs> Look, so mathematically um, and basing on historical averages, your, your best bet is to uh, chuck it all in the market and just mm-hmm. continue to pay down your loan. So whatever interest costs that you bear will probably be offset. When we're talking about these kinds of timeframes, yep. probably be offset by, by market returns. That being said, there's, there's just huge emotional value in being debt-free. You know, it's, it's, it's a guaranteed return of sorts <laughs> when you pay off because mm-hmm. you, 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 the return is, is that you save all that interest that you would otherwise pay. Um, so there's, there's no right or wrong, but that would be the calculus. Yeah. If, if you're in a situation where you're pretty comfortable in meeting those mortgage repayments and you've got a bit of a buffer in case some, something untoward happens, in, mm. you know, unfortunate happens in your life, um, uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say keep doing that. If you're right at the edge, you know, and you're struggling, yeah. you're one of these people who like yeah. can't sleep at night because there's there's murmurs that the RBA might mm-hmm. put up the cash rate by a quarter of a percent. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people in that situation, which is a whole other story. Yeah. Um, then, oh my God, for your peace of mind, pay it down. No, no, that it, life, life is not worth living under under such incredible duress and stress. It's it's just not worth it. But yeah, yeah so if, if you're in a, if you're in a comfortable position with your mortgage and you've got that time frame, I I'd, I would personally chuck it in the market. But yeah. but at the same time, if you turn around and say, no, I, I really like being debt free, <laughs> then then do that too. I mean, the good thing about if, if you did pay it all off, you've still got optionality because let's say a year later you go, oh, I wish I didn't do that. You can draw down the equity on your loan on your yeah, on your home yeah. and, and put it in anyway. So yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's it, it depends is the answer. And it's whatever you prefer. <laughs> it almost <laughs> always is. Yeah. Um, I can't add much to that. I think. Look, and just and just so you know, the, the maths on this one Ryan, is, is relatively straightforward. So if you are, and again, we don't know what, so here's the thing, we don't know what the future is going to bring. So the only, the, the only guaranteed return is to pay the mortgage off. 
you'll get a guaranteed saving of the interest rate that you would have otherwise paid. Now, you can't even know exactly what that would be, but unless the bank's going to give you a zero rate for the rest of your life or pay you to pay your mortgage off, which is probably unlikely in both cases, there's an absolute guaranteed saving of whatever the rate would have been. And you don't know what it's going to be, but it'll be more than zero, and so you're ahead if you pay it off rather than paying for the next you know, 30 years. So that if you want a guaranteed return, that's the way to do it. But probabilistically, let's pick a couple of numbers. The interest rate, let's assume the average interest rate of the next 30 years is 4%. I don't know if that's right or not. Let's just pick that number. Uh, it's less than that now. It's going to be more than that at some point. Let's assume the average is 4%. The average result on the share market over the last 126 odd years, depending on which numbers you look at, is about 10%, give or take. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Pick a number. Call it 10. That means that every dollar you're saving in interest or every dollar you pay off the mortgage, I should say, is saving you four cents in interest. If the future returns anything like the past return from shares, you're, for, you're forgoing or making, depending on which way you're doing it, 10 cents for every dollar. So that's just, that's the simple maths. Is there simply a benefit from investing because the interest rate you're making is larger than the mortgage rate you're saving. Now, you do have to also include tax on that, by the way, because you pay tax on your share gains. You don't pay any tax on the uh, the mortgage. So there is absolutely, you should bring your shares returned down by the tax rate you would pay. Uh, assume capital gains tax, call it 25%. Assume fully frank dividends, half of that. So again, maybe that's 15, somewhere between 0 and 15%, depending on what mortgage uh, tax rate you're on. So let's pick a number, call it 8%. So maybe it's 8% after tax for shares, 4% for the mortgage. You're still ahead investing in shares. And that's to Ram's point why we're saying, you know what, probabilistically, if the future is like the past, and it probably is, but without guarantees, it's you're better off doing that uh, than paying down your mortgage. But as Andrew says, firstly, um, well, as I said, firstly, that's a guaranteed return. Secondly, as Andrew said, it's a, there's, a, there's an emotional psychic benefit and optionality that comes with that stuff. Just simply going, you know what? I don't have a mortgage. <laughs> if I get fired, it doesn't matter. I can stop contributing to my you know, dollar cost averaging ETF if I get fired. I can't stop paying off the house. So there's all those kind of considerations you need to, to keep in mind as well. So there's no simple answer. That's the range of them. Um, I've said before in this podcast, we took the decision a few years ago to pay the extra off our mortgage in advance of what we had to do which was financially not the best decision we could make. Emotionally, psychically, super great decision. Um, for a whole lot of different reasons, uh, largely kind of family related, we just chose to do that and feel better about and less stress about you know, what would happen in a worst case scenario. So now we know. Uh, is it going to cost me money? Yes. Does that frustrate me? Sometimes, yes. <laughs> but it doesn't frustrate me because you know, at the end of the day, the money's there to serve a purpose, which is to give us optionality in life. And optionality means happiness and freedom. If paying off the mortgage gives you happiness and freedom, then you're in the same sort of scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what's another interesting question yeah, which we don't have time for, but I'll just pop it out there. <laughs> Go on. Um, There's nothing better than mailbag where we ask the questions that don't answer them. Well, like, if someone wants to submit this question, I'd be happy to talk <laughs> slash rant about it. Oh, dear. Um, another okay, really interesting- Does it come with a rant attached? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is, I think it does. Is, is renting versus owning, you know, taking was, the money. Yeah, I that. You, you knew, yeah. you knew what I, where I was going with I that. I did, actually. And, uh, <laughs> That's why I assumed there was a rant attached. Like, yeah, oh, here we go. Yeah. It's, 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 a fast, it's a really interesting conversation and it's one where my thinking has definitely evolved having chosen a certain path. Yeah. Um, not, not from a, again, pure mathematical academic standpoint, but from a reality, emotional <laughs> standpoint, there are regrets I've had with hey, the path. Hey, um, we'll cover that next week. Do you want to? But, you know, well, A, it's a great question, but B, what I love about your answer, mate, already, without actually knowing the answer, is you said this is one in which my thinking has evolved. And I am pretty red hot 
on you should be able to explain and highlight areas where not you personally but you you as well as me and everyone else where you've changed your mind recently oh yeah or your thing has evolved right because if you if you're still thinking the same as you were when you were 13 you haven't really lived a particularly wonderful expansive life right i'm not not saying to be critical of anybody who is saying nope i knew exactly what i thought at 13 i've never changed since if that's you and you're right then that's fair uh, I would just say that most people should try and change their minds semi-regularly on at least something of substance relatively. And what is that change you see you think has evolved? Maybe it's the same answer. Maybe you've just got more nuance or something else. Yeah. We won't answer it now. Um, but sorry, I want to hear the answer, by the way. I have my own thoughts on this one. But I actually want to hear the evolution of the thought because that I think is frankly um, more useful as a, a mode of thinking and as a way of living and, and think about investing, right? Mm. You need your, your investing needs to evolve. Your thought process needs to evolve. You need to understand when new information changes your assumptions and conclusions. Yeah. Um, and that's where evolving your thinking in general and the more you can practice it, the better you get at it because it gets you out of that stubborn, I don't, mind, I don't reconsider my thoughts. It's like, no, actually, everything's up, for, everything's up for debate. If new information comes along, if new feelings or thoughts, if new evidence or new arguments come to mind, I'm going to really consider them and then, if needs be, change my mind. So, yeah. so, one, so one, of the, um, one of the stats that you hear every now and again, it's a good one, is that um, in terms of the, the battle of the sexes, uh, the fairer sex is, is uh, better, better at investing. Uh-huh. And, you know, why is that? Um, I, my answer would be for exactly the reasons you've outlined is that guys yeah. are just stupidly arrogant and pig-headed <laughs> and we just don't admit when we're wrong. <laughs> Where the, the girls do, they're much, they're much, they're, uh-huh. they're they're much more agile in their in their thinking, and it's just such a they, they're really sh- it's such a sh- it's one of the real shames of our industry is just so dominated by males, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and we're all weaker for it, and I, I think that's a big part of it. I think that is that is a yep. huge part of it. It's not only a huge part of it; I think it's most of it. But yeah. uh, yes, I think you. I think you. We, we have a. We'll, we'll have offended some blokes, and yeah, if that's you, then. Well, if, if that's you, that's exactly. That's exactly the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That we're, that's I mean, right. that's not irony. You know, <laughs> I'm stubborn. You're stubborn. No, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you never change your mind. Yes, I do. Oh, for God's what about? Sake. Well, yeah. nothing, because I'm not I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so we've just offended some of our listeners. Uh, I I won't actually apologise. I apologise for you being offended. I'll, I'll do the politicians. Uh, nice. Apologize. I'm sorry if you're offended. Uh, but uh, by the way, Andrew's right. Okay, <laughs> mate, that's that's enough. That's enough trouble we've stirred up for today, mate. Will you will you join me next week? Always love it. Yeah. Trick question. You won't join me next week because we're going to pre-record the episode. If but I'm, yes, that's true. You will you will join me. Well, actually, you will join me next week. But next week will be last week by the time this episode goes to air. I'm confused already. But me too. I'm look, whatever it is, I'm looking forward to it. Until then, until whenever it is that we next chat. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.